Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm great. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3. We have with us today uh, an amazing guest, the one and only Jade. She was such a great interview, and on top of that, she gave me a little pearl of wisdom, as yes. as does almost everybody that we have talked to. I find some little thing, I was like, oh man, by the end of this podcast, however many years down the road, I'm going to have so many quivers in my, uh, my arrows in my quiver that, or quivers in my arrow, whichever way you want to, uh, however it works, because I don't shoot a bow uh, or a gun, as that case may be. But, but I mean, just there's always some little thing. Well, little. I would say that her thing might have been little to her. She sort of tosses it off, and now everyone's wondering what it is. It was like, that is one of the smartest things I've ever heard a performer do. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll get to that. I don't want to overdo it too much. No, it was great. But uh, listen, uh, before we dive into interviews and or the rest of this podcast, I'm kind of curious, because last episode, we did it. We broke the space-time continuum, and we asked you folks who are listening to this show, how, or I guess if, we, we should keep doing this and go to season four. Yes, what, we did. What and, were the responses? Well, special thanks to the folks who did write in. Uh, I will say everyone who wrote in had a strong opinion, and they were, for the most part, uh, very, very positive. Everyone has a little, you know, they don't like this, they don't like Jim, they don't like that, they don't like Jim. But other than that... I don't want to go down I'm that sure. path. I, I lost some of that. Some of that, you broke up through most of that. So Don't worry about it. It's all, all right. positive. Okay. Um, but one of the best comments we got was somebody said, hey, John, why don't you make it easier on listeners to comment on this topic by simply doing a survey? That was smart. Yes. You would, uh, something with just like, what, a click on a link in the show notes yep. and then you would answer a few questions? Indeed. That that was such a smart suggestion. So I went ahead and I did that. I created a survey. If you are listening now and you get the uh, the occasional monthly uh, Eli Marks Mysteries uh, newsletter, uh, I put it in there and we got a, a bunch of responses. But uh, the audience listening right now are the people I really want to hear from. So click that survey link. I put it in the show notes and it will... Uh, give you a chance to tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and what we should or shouldn't do moving forward. No. Although, you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. In my heart, I feel this show is just for me, mm -hmm. but I can accept the notion that there might be others out there with valid opinions, okay? So by all means, go ahead, click the link, take the short survey. We, particularly me, want to know what you're thinking. Yeah, the, the answers we've gotten so far, they were very interesting, and they are helping us focus on what season four might end up being, uh, and even beyond that. So click the link, take the survey, it'll take it about a minute and a half or two minutes. And while you're clicking things, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but I hear it on other podcasts, and it makes sense. It really helps to get uh, this podcast out to other interested listeners. If you rate and review it uh, on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, you don't really uh, reviews are great. Ratings are probably more important. Yes. Uh, haven't we had a number of listeners tell us they found the podcast because it was recommended to them by their podcast app? Yep. Yep. We've had people say, you know, friend recommended it, uh, a coworker recommended it, but we've also had a lot of people say, yeah, my 
my app said, hey, if you like that, you're going to like this. So anyway, give us a rating and uh, get us out to, to more people. Uh, that would be very helpful, folks. And we certainly would appreciate you doing all of those things. Yeah. But mostly, uh, I just want to know what what story are we listening to today, John? Uh, it's another story from the eighth book in the Unmarked series, uh, which is The Self-Working Trick. Uh, that award-winning book. Uh, this story is called The Crazy Man's Handcuffs. And following that, we'll hear a conversation with Jade, who's going to talk to us about the pleasures and perils of strolling magic, because yeah. that is, in essence, what this story is about. So rather than banter on mindlessly about it, uh, let's just dive in right now. Uh, here is The Crazy Man's Handcuffs. <laughs> The Crazy Man's Handcuffs It comes with the territory. That phrase had always been my Uncle Harry's go-to retort. In his mind, it worked for virtually any of my whiny lamentations, from a teenage broken heart to complaints about the inevitable lines at the DMV. So it wasn't surprising when his words echoed in my head as the persistent guest followed me to my next group of partygoers. I'd begun to think of him as my shadow because he had latched on to me early in the evening. He seemed determined to witness each and every one of my close-up performances as I made my way through the large, brightly festooned ballroom. I had been hired for 90 minutes of walk-around magic, and this middle-aged man seemed resolute in his self-imposed goal to see every single minute of it. Walk-around magic, as it's been christened, doesn't require that you actually saunter while you perform. It instead means a magician moves from small group to small group, usually in a party situation, interrupting the flow of each gaggle's conversation with an offer to perform a bit of sleight of hand. Some magicians hate it. Some thrive on it. Most of us fall somewhere in the murky middle. For myself, I have come to recognize its benefits, few as they may be. To begin with, in the right situation, it can pay quite well for an hour or two's worth of work. It also doesn't require learning new material, as you essentially do the same few tricks for each group throughout your allotted time. As Uncle Harry was fond of telling me, a magician who knows six tricks can spend their entire career making a fine living only performing walk-around magic. Besides the monetary benefit, the gig also allows the performer the paid opportunity to hone and perfect a trick in a short amount of time, if that's your goal. As with most things, if you do the same magic trick 20 times in the course of an evening, by the end of that night, you will have discovered all its shortcomings and likely come up with a few workable solutions as well. I wasn't using this gig as a chance to try out some new material, although, given the persistence of my constant companion, I was beginning to wish I had. Instead, I was relying on my fairly standard walk-around set designed to get me into a small group, make an impression, and get out and onto the next group with minimal fuss. I usually kick things off with Richard Sanders' Extreme Burn, a great effect in which I transform five $1 bills into five $100 bills, all in less than the blink of an eye. It works on all occasions, 
but is particularly effective in a room full of type A, big finance salespeople, which aptly described the crowd I was facing at this particular event. The room smelled of money, and so it was the perfect trick to introduce myself to each high-powered cluster of partygoers. Sticking with the theme of currency, I'd then move on to three-fly, a trick where I appear to make a coin fly from one hand to the other. Among the many benefits of this trick is that it plays well at eye level. Other tricks I'd used in the past required keeping my hands down by my waist, so the audience was essentially staring at my crotch throughout the routine. The change was a welcome one. Finally, if they seemed minimally pleased with the performance and not itching to get rid of me, I'd wrap things up with a rubber band trick called the crazy man's handcuffs. The trick is simplicity itself. An intertwined pair of rubber bands appear to melt through each other as they separate right before your eyes. It's a great way to wrap up a short performance before moving on. All in all, the gig was going well. In fact, the only insect in the evening's ointment was my newly acquired Shadow, who appeared glued to my side as I did my short set for my latest group of partygoers. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I wasn't delighted with his enthusiasm. It's not uncommon to pick up a groupie or two at these events. Usually, it's a middle-aged guy who had long ago abandoned the idea of becoming a performing magician in favor of getting a real job with a regular paycheck. Watching me perform often rekindled that spark of childhood wonder and fascination. Alternatively, he could have been one of those people who simply could not rest until he figured out how a trick was accomplished thus the need for multiple viewings. He was reminding me of a ploy often employed by my Uncle Harry. On more than one occasion at a magic convention, Harry had been approached by a younger magician who wanted to demonstrate his or her latest effect to the master himself. If Harry could spot how the trick worked, he'd usually offer some heartfelt praise and perhaps a word or two of advice. However, if Harry couldn't immediately figure out how it was done, he'd say something along the lines of, Oh my, you know who would love that? He'd then say the name of another well-known magician and drag the kid across the room to perform it for this new audience. If Harry could figure out the trick on this second viewing, he'd call it a day. If not, once again he'd say, You know who needs to see this trick? For a second time, they'd cross the room for an impromptu performance for this new victim. Usually, by the fourth or fifth repetition of the routine, Harry would figure out the method and release the unsuspecting magician back into the wild. I was getting that same sneaking suspicion about my stalker. I thanked the latest small group and moved away from the cluster while I glanced at my watch. My 90 minutes was just about done so I scanned the ballroom to see if I could catch sight of the event planner. My contract requires payment at the end of the gig, and the notion of grabbing my check and heading home was utmost in my mind. For a delightful moment, I'd forgotten about my new best friend. And then, for the first time that night, I heard him speak. What's that last trick called? I turned. He was, as always, just inches away. Excuse me? The trick with the rubber bands. What's that called? I stopped 
and considered his simple and direct question. In my early days, I would have immediately offered up the name of the effect. But with the emergence of smartphones and Google, supplying a trick's name was essentially the same thing as telling him how the trick was done. A two-second search would provide him a plethora of videos revealing the secret behind the effect. My admittedly lame solution was to offer quickly made-up names for the tricks to throw them off the scent, like, that's the Preminger effect with an auto stinger, I'd say, or that one's called hawks and handsaws. Of course, I knew full well that at best, I was merely slowing them down. If they really wanted the solution, the internet was more than willing to provide. However, it was the end of the night, and he'd seen the rubber band trick a minimum of 12 times, so what did it matter? When Arthur Setterington came up with it, he called it Getaway, I began. Then Herb Zero did some work on it. Lou Tannen put that version in Tarbell 7, which Harry Lorraine wrote. I was, from the force of habit, providing him a longer chain of ownership than he'd probably wanted. However, I continued, the version I do is pretty close to the one Michael Amar was famous for, which Daryl nicknamed the crazy man's handcuffs. It doesn't require anything special, just two normal rubber bands. I'm sure you can find tons of video instructions for it online. He was nodding along with my recitation, but I got the sense he wasn't really listening. Here, you can have these, I said as I pulled two rubber bands from my pocket. We'll call it a starter kit. He took the bands from me, but didn't look at them. He was staring blankly off into the distance. He turned to me suddenly, his eyes now sharp and focused. I want to hire you, he said. Sure thing, I said as I reached for a card. Are you looking for a performance, or are you interested in magic lessons? No, he said with a quick shake of his head. I need you to help me kill someone. From having worked that hotel frequently in the past, I knew two things about its lobby bar. If an open bar event was going on in the ballroom, the lobby's tavern would be just about vacant. But regardless of the number of occupants, instead of the traditional bowl of peanuts or beer nuts at each table, this establishment set out bowls of whole salted cashews on every table. It was like heaven with Muzak. With those two thoughts in mind, I found us a table in the back. We placed our drink order with a bored server who was clearly surprised to see any patrons at all. As he ordered his vodka gimlet, I took a closer look at my shadow. He was definitely middle-aged, although I'd found my precise definition of that term was getting murkier the older I got but he was clearly somewhere in that no-man's land between 40 and 50, with a hairline that was receding in direct proportion to his expanding waistline. His face was headed toward doughy, but the remnants of a sharp chin and cheekbones were still visible. He wore a good suit, but it was nowhere near as sharp or expensive as most of the others I'd seen in the ballroom we'd just left. Once the server had departed, he turned to me. Thanks for sticking around and not running for the nearest exit, he said with a chuckle, despite my creepy sales pitch. It was certainly an attention grabber, I agreed. Dave, was it? He nodded. Yep, 
Dave. And you're writing a story? He shrugged. Well, I'm trying to. And you want me to help you kill someone? In the story? I was repeating back his hurried explanation from our ballroom conversation to clarify his intentions. I'd love to get your thoughts. He glanced down at the bowl of cashews in front of us, grabbed one, and then pushed the bowl away. It was his third trip to the dish since we'd sat down. Gotta cool it on these things, he said. I redirected the bowl's location to my side of the table and grabbed a couple of cashews in the process. What's the story about? The question gave him pause, and he took it, considering his words carefully. I'm still trying to sort it out in my head, he said finally. You see, I've always wanted to start writing fiction, but one thing or another, work usually, has gotten in my way. But I made a New Year's resolution to make some big changes, and so far, I'm making at least a little progress. But then I hit a wall and need some help getting over it. I nodded and glanced down at the cashew bowl, quickly calculating how soon it would be depleted based on my current rate of cashew consumption. I looked around casually and was happy to spot a nearly full bowl just out of my reach at the next table. I made a mental note of its existence. It's a thriller, kind of a murder thing, Dave continued, about a guy who kills his wife and the young cop who tries to figure it out. But you know, literary in a way. Suburban angst, midlife crisis, that sort of thing. Like John Cheever meets John Sanford? He nodded quickly, although I wasn't convinced he'd fully understood the analogy. Exactly. But I'm having trouble with the murder. I mean, coming up with a good one, because in the end, I want my guy to get away with it. Well, if you're looking for advice on police procedure, I began. My ex-wife is an assistant district attorney, and her husband is a homicide detective. He's not particularly chatty, but he does know his stuff. I could hook you up with them for some inside information. Dave shook his head. No, no. I mean, thanks, but no, he said quickly. I thought you, as a magician, might have some clever notions, something outside the box. It occurred to me when you did that trick with the rubber bands. The crazy man's handcuffs. Right, he nodded. I mean, I love the metaphor. Two objects seemingly joined together, interwoven, entangled. And then, due to some unseen force, the bond between them seems to just melt away. And they're no longer together. Two completely separate entities. As metaphors go, that's a pretty good description of my situation. In the story, he quickly added. The server arrived with our drinks, and we were silent for a few moments as she arranged the glasses in front of us. For her final move, she took the nearly depleted cashew bowl from in front of me and swapped in the full one from the next table. I mentally doubled her tip. Here's the situation, Dave said once the server had moved away. This guy's been married since high school because they got pregnant. A common trope, I know. Then another kid, and another. He's working in an industry he despises, has gotten about as far up the ladder as he's likely to get. He hates his life. He's feeling stuck, trapped, really, 
he added as he took a deep sip from his glass. And murder is his only way out? He shrugged. In his mind, yes. He has come to learn that his wife is really a terrible, terrible person. Constant abuse, belittling him. She would never give him the satisfaction of a divorce. Plus, there's a hefty life insurance policy. People have killed for less, I agreed. You bet. But I want something foolproof, he continued, looking down at the drink in his hand. Foolproof, he repeated as much to me as to himself. Well, as my pal Jamie Ian Swiss used to say, nothing is foolproof because fools can be very determined. But I'm not sure he heard this. He's smarter than the police, he said quietly. He knows that, and the murder is his way of proving it. I mean, they might suspect he did it, but they can never, ever prove it. We sat silently for several moments as he continued to stare down at the table. I could feel the tension in his shoulders and watched as the muscles in his jaw clenched and unclenched. What have you come up with so far? I finally asked, although my mind had moved on to other more pressing concerns. I was thinking about how I could slip my phone out of my pocket and discreetly start the record function, but I wasn't sure how I might accomplish that without drawing attention to the action. A bit of misdirection was required, and I was coming up empty. Immediately, I heard my Uncle Harry's voice in my head. Do it on the offbeat. I understood in theory what he meant. However, I wasn't sure where the offbeat, or for that matter, the onbeat was in this unique situation. The hairy voice in my head must have sensed my confusion because he continued, Okay then, let the big action cover the little action. Was that the concept? Or was it, let the little action cover the big action? Both and neither were making sense to me at the moment. I began to lean toward the second version, and then I hit another roadblock. What would constitute a big action in this situation? As if to answer me, the server picked that moment to walk past. Another of the same, I said with a gesture toward my nearly full glass as I waved her over. And I'd like to start a tab. As I spoke, I reached into my coat pocket and removed my wallet slipping out the phone in the same fluid action. How about you? I asked my companion, turning to him as I handed a credit card to the server. As I did that, I set the wallet with the phone underneath it on the table to my left, just out of Dave's line of sight. My deceptive move went unnoticed because he shook his head without even looking up. The server nodded and continued on her way. Using my wallet as cover, I tried to start the recording function on the phone, but was having trouble remembering the sequence of steps required to activate the little-used app. What was your question? He looked up, clearly deep in his own thoughts. What methods have you considered so far? I asked, as my fingers slid blindly across the phone's smooth face. Oh, all kinds of crazy things, Dave said. I even have one idea where he arranges things so it appears to the police that her lover had killed her and that the lover has gone to great lengths to frame my guy for the crime. I like that. Framing the lover 
so it looks like he's framing me. My guy. She has a lover? He nodded. Multiple lovers over the years. She isn't shy about it, like I said. She's a horrible person. But that idea was just too darn convoluted. Simple is hard, I agreed, once again hearing Harry's voice from throughout the years chiding me over my handling of one trick or the other. No, no, he would say, clearly exasperated. Easy is not the same as simple. Any hack can make a trick easy. But to make it truly simple, to shape its elements so they're at their most direct and straightforward, that can take even the most brilliant magician years to achieve. It's too bad, he said. I would love to be able to frame the lover so that he takes the fall. Killing two birds, as it were. That would be great. He grinned for the first time, really seeming excited by this notion. Just great. I was getting nowhere with the app and was suddenly struck with an idea. Oh, I said a little too brightly. I think I just got a text. Excuse me. I wasn't likely to win an Academy Award, but he seemed to believe that I had, indeed, just that moment received a message. I held my phone so he couldn't see the screen, performing a mix of terrible mime and actual swiping to make it look like I was responding to a text. Finally, with more effort than I'd anticipated, I got the recording app up and running. Crisis averted, I said, again a bit too brightly, as I set the phone back on the table face down. I gave it a little nudge so that its microphone was pointed in Dave's direction. So your ideal scenario would be to frame her lover for the murder? He nodded, still smiling at the notion. Realizing that nodding would not play well on the recording, I continued. Have you taken any steps or formed any plans? I asked, then added quickly, I mean, in the story. He shook his head as his smile disappeared. The details are the hard part. That's true in magic as much as fiction, I agreed. So how do you do it? He asked, turning toward me. How do you fool people? Make them think one thing is happening when something else is actually at work. That's a big question, I said slowly. That might be the biggest question in magic, with all kinds of answers. Most of the time, the audience does half the work for you, or more even. How do you mean? Well, one common fallacy is that the show starts when the magician comes on stage. In reality, he or she may have done a ton of pre-show work so that by the time the curtain opens, a lot of the heavy lifting has already taken place. So the murder could start before it actually starts, he said as he turned and looked off into the distance. Then there's the concept of dual reality. The audience thinks one thing is going on, while your volunteer on stage is having a wholly different experience. He seemed to still be processing the previous idea. He looked over at me. You mean, it looks like one thing is happening to one group while others are experiencing something else? He repeated, saying the words slowly as he considered the concept. That's the idea, I said. And then, don't discount the use of stooges. 
Moe and Curly and the other one? He was clearly mystified at what appeared to be an unannounced shift in the direction of our conversation. No, stooges from the audience. Plants. People you've worked with ahead of time to help sell an effect. To the audience, they don't appear to be involved in the magic, but it couldn't happen without them. Do magicians use a lot of stooges? I shook my head. In reality, hardly ever. Although I could have named a few magicians who employed nearly an army of stooges, they were the exception to the rule and not germane to our discussion. Then it occurred to me that I really should be the one making Dave talk, if capturing evidence was my intention. So what other ideas have you already vetoed? I took a sip of my drink, gesturing that the floor was his. As Dave quickly listed off some ideas he'd come up with and rejected, I looked down at the phone, hoping the app was silently doing its job. At the same time, I was also wondering if what I was doing was strictly legal. I couldn't help think back to the multiple conversations I'd had on this very topic with my ex-wife while we were married. She was always railing about this recording or that recording being deemed inadmissible at the last minute which resulted in her case collapsing. Her monologues on the topic were long and profane. While I had sharp memories of the tone of these speeches, I was wishing I had listened a little closer to the finer points of her arguments. The fact was, I really wasn't sure if what I was doing was going to help put Dave in jail or help him avoid it. I snapped back to attention when it was clear he had finished his litany. In short, he concluded, all my ideas have literally been done to death and would be spotted in an instant by even the dimmest of detectives. New ideas are rare, I began, not sure where I was headed. Then, once again, Uncle Harry's voice echoed in my brain and offered a direction. My Uncle Harry is a real old pro in the magic world, I said. Been everywhere, done everything. And he's always said that in magic, the best way to hide a brilliant idea is to put it in a book. No magician would ever think to look for it there. The truth is, one of the best ways to come up with a smart idea is to take an old idea and make it your own. Give it a new spin, add a different, unique dimension, I continued. There are tons of fantastic ideas out there. People are just too lazy to search them out. So. Maybe you could find something in one of the thousands of true crime novels out there. Or on Netflix. They seem to have no shortage of documentaries about spouses killing each other. Dave shook his head. I appreciate the concept, he said. But those books and documentaries are all focused on the people who got caught. That's not what I'm looking for. I could see his point. It does make you wonder why they don't produce a few shows on the people who got away with murder. Only to balance the scales, I suggested. I wish. I considered my own limited history of murder. In all the cases my ex-wife had been involved in, and the few I'd had even a slight connection with, ultimately the killer was captured. And then I remembered one possible exception. There was one case, I began as I thought back on the circumstances. I thought the killer was pretty clever, but they fell just short of the mark, so to speak. I mean, they were caught, 
but they didn't have to be. This statement clearly sparked Dave's interest, and he turned to face me expectantly. The server arrived at that moment with my wholly unnecessary second drink, setting it next to the nearly full one in front of me. She silently handed back my credit card before moving on. I sensed judgment in her body language. Once she was out of earshot, I continued. The method they employed was clever, I said quietly. They used the victim's sleep apnea machine. They put poison in with the water for the device's humidifier chamber. As it heated up, the poison melted and was inhaled by the victim while he slept. And that worked? Like a charm, I said. The victim appeared to have died in his sleep because the poison stopped his heart. The reason they got caught was that the killer used a common poison like cyanide or strychnine or something, which was easily detected during the autopsy. But I remember one of the cops telling me they would have gotten away with it if only they'd been smart enough to use a non-detectable poison. So that was their mistake, Dave said, as he considered the scenario I'd presented. They just picked the wrong kind of poison. Otherwise, they would have gotten away with it? I shrugged. That's what the detective said. Poison in her damned sleep apnea machine, he repeated. That would work nicely. I suddenly realized I might have gone too far in my efforts to keep our conversation rolling. Of course, I said, backpedaling quickly. With today's forensics, there's probably no such thing as an undetectable poison. Oh, I'm sure there's something out there somewhere, Dave mumbled. I could tell the wheels were turning in his brain. I was frantically trying to think of a way to reverse that process. He finished his drink quickly as he reached into his coat pocket. He pulled out his phone and glanced at it. Oh, that's my ride, he said as he made some quick swipes and taps on the small screen. Either he was a better actor than me, or he was actually responding to a real text. So anyway, Dave, we should stay in touch in case I come up with more ideas, I began, but he cut me off. Did I say my name was Dave? He said. He appeared to be grinning as he pushed himself back from the table. I'm pretty sure you did, I said but my confidence in that detail was suddenly not so strong. Interesting choice, he said. Almost Freudian. So are you heading back to the event in the ballroom? I continued, trying to sound as casual as possible. He seemed puzzled by this suggestion. Oh, that cocktail party? He shook his head and smiled. No, I just wandered in there. Classic interloper, that's me. I'm not even staying at this hotel. Anyway, it was great talking to you. What do I owe you for the drink? I waved that notion away. I'd really love to chat more, I said quickly, trying to think of a way, any way, to keep him talking so I could gather more information about him and his intended victim. No, I think we're good, he said. Great trick, by the way, that thing with the rubber bands. Really clean. What did you call it again? The crazy man's handcuffs, I sputtered. I couldn't believe what was happening. I'd sat down for a drink with a sociopath.
and stupidly given him a foolproof method for murdering his wife and getting away with it. Not only was he a monster, but I was practically an accomplice. See you around. He headed toward the door, and I struggled to my feet to follow him, but the server was once again in front of me. She was holding a receipt and a pen. I quickly signed it and took a couple precious seconds to calculate a reasonable tip before handing it back to her and racing toward the door. I made it about ten feet and then hurried back to grab my wallet and my phone. The bar emptied out into the hotel's main lobby, which was bustling even at this late hour. The event must have wrapped up as partygoers were pouring through the lobby, either heading toward the bar or the valet stand. I scanned the large space, looking for any sign of my drinking companion, but he had somehow vanished. I looked toward the line at the valet stand on the other side of the revolving doors, but he didn't appear to be part of that growing queue. I looked toward the ballroom, but he wasn't in sight. Are you looking for someone? The voice was resonant and reassuring. I turned to see a handsome black man, maybe in his fifties. He was standing a few feet away, his phone in his hand. Um, sort of, I stammered. I was just having a drink with a guy in the bar, and now I can't find him. I seem to have lost my date as well, he said with a smile. He looked me over again. Say, aren't you the magician who was performing at the party? I nodded while I continued to scan the room. Yes, that was me. Let me take a guess. Was this drinking companion of yours looking for a way to kill his wife? His words stopped me cold. I turned to him, surprised to see he was still smiling. He might have been, I offered. Sorry about that, he said. He shook his head slowly. I really can't take him anywhere. Where were you taking him? Suddenly this new conversation was as confusing as the last one. It's our 25th anniversary, and he was nice enough to be willing to spend it here while I put in an appearance at this work event, he said with a nod toward the ballroom. I followed his gaze and then turned back to him. So he's not killing his wife, I offered. He shook his head. Back in the day, I dated all kinds of people, he said. Even a couple of magicians, he added with a grin. And I can tell you this, magicians may be weird, but writers are weirder. So he really is writing a story? I began, my words trailing off. And looking for a foolproof murder scheme? He said, completing my thought. Yes, he is. God help us if the authorities ever go through our search history. No jury in the world would acquit. He really sucked me in. Good writers do that, he offered. And speak of the devil, here he is now. I turned to see Dave, or whatever his name might be, headed toward us. Sorry, had to visit the little writer's room before the ride home, he said, greeting his partner with a quick kiss on the cheek. He turned to me. And thanks again for the drink and the ideas. I think I've really got a handle on this one now. Glad to be of service, I said. I realized my phone was still in my hand and that the app was still running. I didn't care anymore. Our Uber is waiting for us, 
his partner said, gently nudging him toward the revolving doors. Nice meeting you, he said over his shoulder. Dave was still bubbling over with excitement. I think with his help, I really cracked it, he said. And then they disappeared into the crowd heading out the door. I looked down at my phone. The recording app was showing me a little time code window, informing me that it had been 22 minutes since I had started my recording. I hit the stop button and then pushed the file into the trash. I stood there for a long moment as people pushed past me. My adrenaline was still pumping. And then, as I slowly returned to reality, I realized that in all the commotion, I hadn't tracked down the event planner. She still held my check for my 90 minutes of work. I began to move toward the ballroom like a salmon heading upstream. I had to agree with the man. Magicians may be weird, I thought, but writers are weirder. Yeah, I guess I'm slamming writers there. Writers are crazy people. Magicians are crazy people. I guess, Jim, don't you think we're all kind of a little crazy? Certifiable. I I think there's not one of us that couldn't use uh, some intensive therapy with a a team of specialists working (laughs) round the clock just on us. Or just keep listening to the podcast. One or the other. So, you know, over the last, uh, boy, we're almost two and a half years uh into this we've talked god's name can that be i don't know it's i i we're past 50 episodes i'm just gobsmacked but anyway we've talked uh on and off about strolling magic uh with a lot of different magicians but um i thought it'd be fun to focus specifically on that and who better to do that with than uh than jade yeah she is a real pro and we are so grateful that we got a chance to chat with her huh Yes, you know, I was doing some research for another Eli Marks project and was reading through Joshua Jay's first magic book, his big one from 2008. And who should appear on the pages of that as one of the modern masters but Jade. Uh, she's been around for a while. She she has a slightly different entry point into magic than many of our magicians. Not slightly. Um, I, I, I think it's that was part of the shock of it for me was the the randomness of how this happened for her yes we've talked to people whose families have run magic stores who become magicians like uh that's a lot of women uh julianne will be talking yeah. to alexandra de vivier uh, later this season she grew up in a magic shop but in the case of jade she didn't just wander in well she did sort of wander in but it wasn't her intention to make it her career but uh, that's what happened We don't generally spend a lot of time on on background, but I would like to get just give us an idea of how did you how did you start out in magic? I think I'm one of the rare ones that fell into the world of magic. Uh, I was 17, wanted to get a a job before my senior year, so it was the summer, and uh, I found a job working in a magic shop on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, and I ended up staying there for nine years graduated college after changing my major three times. And I thought I'd better get a degree in case the magic doesn't, you know, have any power. So I never had to turn back and use my degree. However, I think that I studied mass communications 
Mm-hmm. And I, at some point, I, I thought maybe I would be a television journalist or something. Uh, but the things that I learned about being in front of the camera and all that actually applies to the TV shows that I've appeared on. So it's all been very handy. It turns and, out you've been good planning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I had, if I could read my future, that would be the things to things to do. And, and you know, I have to say, now that I'm talking about it, it's weird how my life kind of set itself up because during college I did take theater just because I needed a thing on the side, an activity on the side. I did that. Uh, and I also took dance and all those things came into use for what I do. Well planned, yeah. even if it wasn't planned. <laughs> it, uh, very, very nice. Very, very nice. How fortunate. I, I you know, I, I talk to people and I often think back, what if my first first job was not working at the magic shop. What if I just worked at McDonald's? Would I be performing magic now? I don't know. It's possible. Or you'd be running McDonald's. Yeah, oh, right. exactly. You'd be the CEO of McDonald's. Did you <laughs> did you come from a magic family, Jade? Did- oh, no, nobody. Oh my god, no. Traditional Chinese family. Are you kidding? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, how? Uh, what it? What an interesting place to choose to work. Then, if you, I, I mean, how how do you? How you, you, you know what it was. Magic store? Well, okay. So, so it was a choice. It was my first possible job offering, and I get to choose. Do I work at this magic shop that I know nothing about or care about because magic is really for boys anyway? Because I've never seen a woman. Or work at McDonald's that I know all my friends and my even my sister had worked there. Mm. And then I thought, nah, not McDonald's. Uh-uh. I'm going to try the magic shop. And you have to know that in high school and through a good part of my the beginning of my life, I was a very, very shy girl. I was shy. The way I spent my recess was hanging out by my locker in high school <laughs> with my girlfriends. That's all I that's all we did. Uh. Um, yeah, so having conversations with complete strangers were difficult. And I know that after working at the magic shop for six months, uh, the assistant manager came over to me and said, so listen, the manager said, if you don't start selling things, we're going to have to fire you. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, that put a fire under my butt and thought, I better start speaking to complete strangers and um, try to sell something. Uh, what I realized is you can overcome Anyone can overcome their shyness when they find the need to do what they need to do. I didn't want to get fired. I didn't want to work in McDonald's. So my option was to open up my mouth, learn how to do the magic tricks and present them and sell them so I can stay. So I, I, my conclusion, I remember thinking in the beginning was, okay, Fisherman's Wharf, 100% tourist. Okay, maybe a few locals, but they usually don't come. So these tourists, they're going to go back to Switzerland, Sweden, uh, Turkey, wherever they're from, and I'm never going to see them again. And if I'm foolish, so be it. I don't care. They'll never see me again. So that was my rationale, and I moved on. It's something that a lot of beginning magicians have to realize that is when you're performing for strangers. Uh, and we've heard this before on on the podcast, particularly I remember uh, Noah Sony talking about working at the Mall of America and just loving the fact that 
he had this constant flow of new audience members and he'd never see them again. So it didn't really matter. And he was able to learn. What was your, what was your learning curve like getting up to speed? Cause I know that uh, we talked last year to our friend, uh, Larry Kahlo, who runs Eagle Magic here in the Twin Cities. And he commented as he was demonstrating a trick, he said the, the, the smartest thing he ever learned was from his wife who said, stop demonstrating tricks that cost less than $10. What, <laughs> what was uh, your learning curve like? Of course, I understand where the wipe was coming from. Yes, you got you got bonuses if you sold the more expensive coin tricks because they were $50, $80. And they came in a little box or a little plastic bag. So I aimed to earn my $5 whatever bonus if I sold that $55 coin trick. And um, what I realized is because I spent nine years of my life growing up in a magic shop, I'm very good at reading instructions. And I'm also, <laughs> I, I can get it. I, it processes quickly in my head. And even now, as I read new tricks or whatever, uh, I can see it, I manage it. And then I'm very, also very quick to deviate from the original because I find another way of operating or handling whatever items and, and deciding, uh, no, that way it doesn't work for me. I'm going to do it this way because it makes more sense to me. But, but maybe that's just because of years of the, the magic shop and also as a performer too. I don't know if in the beginning I was, of course, in the beginning, I just followed instructions exactly, say exactly as they say in the instructions. But, you know, time gives you uh, the opportunity to learn to improve. And when did you start actually getting out from behind the counter and doing performances? <laughs> okay, so uh, working at the magic shop, I uh, eventually became the demonstrator. From the demonstrator, I became the assistant manager, I don't know, after maybe five years or four years. And uh, from that position, I was able to order magic tricks that I thought I could use or I thought was cool because the manager didn't do any magic. And so she had no clue. Uh, and I had the influence on what to order. Also, um, I would get the phone calls that comes in looking for magicians. And I remember specifically my first public performance was, I think it was a Marriott or a Holiday Inn down the street at Fisherman's Wharf. They called, they said, Hello, uh, we have a place called Illusions Magic Bar and Lounge. We're looking for a magician. Do you know of anyone? I said, yes, I do. I'll send her right down. <laughs> and I showed up. <laughs> That's fabulous. Oh, my God. Oh, God. It was the best gig. I would get off my sh- my my job at the magic shop, walk over to the, to the hotel, do my close-up, and then go home. It was the best gig ever. Do you remember what your set consisted of at that point? Oh, probably sponge balls and what else? Uh, it would have been card tricks, probably definitely card tricks, packet tricks, things that I sold because I was still rather new, you know, four years into this, my weekend job because I was still going through college. So I was juggling everything. Def- probably the hot rod. Come on, everybody yeah. needs a hot rod. Yeah. Oh, yeah. scotch and soda. Oh, sure. Yeah. Scotch and soda. Sure. Sure. These are classics yeah. of magic. If you're listening and you're not a magician, these are classics of magic she's they talking are. about. <laughs> uh, 
Jay, did you, uh, are you primarily then self-taught or did you find a mentor or was there another magician that you, uh, you know, learned some things from or is this just all you? When I started, of course, there were people that had to show me how to cut some balls and a hot rod and linking rings. All those things worked. I think the handling was probably me. I, I, I don't, because I had taken dance, you know, I like grace. I like movements to be graceful and flowy. And so my hand motions were always like that. Speaking of which, an old ex-manager of the magic shop that I worked at had seen me at a magic exhibition. What was it? Uh, I was doing the light and heavy chess. It was magic as oh. science. And they didn't see my face, but they saw my hands. M my friend Richard, that was the um, ex-manager at the magic shop, he said, I saw your hands. I knew it was you. <laughs> and I thought, what? And he tracked me down. I, we had lost touch. He moved from San Francisco to LA and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he tracked me down with the the exhibit manager and uh, got a hold of me. And so that one phrase when he says, I could tell your hands from anywhere. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I never thought about that. So I, I'm sure in the beginning, there were uh, learning curves. I think I still do my sponge ball the same way that my friend Malcolm Lee, who was the manager at the time, had taught me how to do the sponge balls. And I still do it that way. And the linking rings that I do now, which I absolutely love doing because I, I think I present it in a way that's different from most guys. And that it's very slow and it's graceful. It's kind of like a ballet with the ring. That, I started using it, performing it when I was working in the magic shop. So that's been a long, long, long time because I'm not, 18 anymore so <laughs> which of us is yeah right <laughs> our our listeners will have just heard the short story the uh Grace man's handcuffs in which eli is pestered by a, a guest at an event he's doing strolling magic at um it sounds like your first gigs were strolling magic yeah how how has your set changed since then what do you uh what do you like to do now so you got to realize as a woman, right? We don't have pockets. We are limited to what I can fit in my little evening purse. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in it, I have a marker. I have a regular deck that allows me to do Aussie Wind's double exposure. I, ha I have coins across, you know, with the special coins, cards to be destroyed with a for card warp. Oh, also with the regular deck, you can do the Kundalini Rising, which is super fun and Oh, and, and uh, billets for the billet tear. So I you are really that. compact in, in what you're in what you're taking out onto the floor. Yeah, it has to fit fit tightly. Yeah, I have nowhere else to put it. You know, and I don't think late people would even think about the differences of what what's available to you under those circumstances, as opposed to the traditional guy walking around who might be wearing a sport coat and might have, you know, four pockets in his pants and four pockets or more in the <laughs> coat and just an endless supply of things. And you you really have to uh, economize it. You must be very good at packing to travel as well. <laughs> <laughs> you betcha, baby. <laughs> You know, um, I have to conserve on space and realize that some things have to do double duty or just the things that hits what will hit the hardest and leave the um, strongest impression in the shortest amount of time. Uh, that's all I've got. And also realizing I'm in an evening gown with no pockets. 
and I can't dump anything because I have no pockets. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, uh, as, as you uh, walk around magic is so fascinating to me because I mean, I, I think as a performer, the, the biggest thing is establishing that rapport with an audience and then riding that wave uh, for an hour or an hour and a half or whatever it's going to be. But in right. walk around magic, you're having to constantly establish that rapport with a different group of people. Do you have a, a, a unique way of introducing yourself to each small group? First, let me explain that I have to do like a mental gymnastic in my head. When I go to do a uh, walk around gig, I'm there. When I get in, I meet the event planner. La la la. Great to be here. Okay. Who are your important people? Good. Now I then in my head, I tell, because you got to realize a shy person is always a shy person. So inside of me, I'm still working. It's, it's work. I'm not, yeah, it's hard. It takes energy for me to be outgoing. So uh, in my head, I say, oh, these are my old friends I haven't seen in a long time. I'm so glad Joe is here. And there's John. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Let's go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go say hi. That's my mental gymnastics. I go there and I say, Joe, hi. How are you? Has the magician been by? And they say, what magician? Oh, well, then let me tell you. My name is Jade and I am the magician for the evening. And there I go into it. And you're That's in. fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> Recasting in your own mind. I've never, uh, I've never heard of that. So this is that's fantastic for me to use as a, as a, 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 a the mental gymnastics of that. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I, I don't know how anybody else does it because, how because for me it's genuine. I really, I haven't seen them in a long time. So. I, Obviously, at the theater, you know, role playing, I can do that. So I tap into that and and play the part. I'm the part. That's very smart. I know in uh, uh, I believe Scott Wells told me about a guy who because when when Eli does close up magic, he's doing basically the walk around set that Scott Wells gave me because I'm not a magician. And I said, what what do you do? And Scott Wells gave me three or four things. And he said, these are what I do. And I do them in disorder. And it keeps things up around my face. So they're not looking down, doing all that sort of thing. But he said he had a friend who would go up to each group and say, hello, I'm Dave. I'm a professional interrupter. How am I doing? And that would get a laugh and then he'd go into it. But the one that Scott told me that that Eli uses throughout all eight books, anytime he's in a close-up situation, is what he was told by his Uncle Harry, which is find the name of the most important person in the room and then go up to the group and say, Yes, um, your your president, uh, Felicia, uh, she's asked me to go around and entertain. Uh, do you mind if I do something for you? Because as soon as you mention the boss's name, they're going to say <laughs> yes. You're going to say yes, and you're in. But your idea of creating a, a, a mental image of these are old friends, and I'm so glad to see them again, is really clever. And really, I can imagine it, it produces in your brain the chemicals you need to go see your friends yeah i'm excited i want to be here and i I, i'm glad to see them you know 20 years might have passed so they look different now you know it works yes our our friend suzanne who does a lot of strolling magic and who i got i've gotten to watch on a number of occasions what amazes me about her is it, she is not a i think jim would agree a naturally outgoing person she makes that work but she's a very introspective person. But I've seen her, particularly at, at one gig where she was not feeling well at all, 
when it came time to do it, a switch flipped and it was Suzanne and she was alive and, and in there and doing it. And then she'd step <laughs> away. And, and Jim, I'm sure you've run into that as well, performing where something just clicks in and you can you can make it happen even at the worst of times. Yeah, see, I, I agree with that. And I, I'm that's why I'm so intrigued by this idea of recasting the audience in my mind as something other than an audience uh, uh that that's just a really clever uh, mental trick that i'm gonna absolutely make use of that that's a that's brilliant uh and and <laughs> as a performer myself those kinds of things that um that a professional like you has come up with are absolutely invaluable i i think that's just so cool if if nothing else comes from this interview, <laughs> I've gotten what I came for already. <laughs> but stick around, Jim, because there's going to be more. Gonna, I forget who the uh, uh, Stephen uh, Stephen Wright. I think some of these are individual jokes, and <laughs> when you've heard yours, feel free to leave. I think I've gotten all I need right now, but I'm going to stick around anyway. Yeah, I should let you know that Jim, I believe uh, one of our last episodes proclaimed at the end that uh, he no longer cared if anyone was listening because he was enjoying it so much. It didn't matter if we had an audience or not. That's exactly my <laughs> point. This is all about me. I'm sorry to make it oh, that way. That's the way Jim, it is. Jim, <laughs> it is all about you. Yeah, thank it you. is. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so let's say, let me ask this. You've got a small group uh, in front of you. Things are going really, really well. There, This is a small group that is really into it. Do you have anything that you've kind of, you can't slip it into your back pocket, but something you've got just in case you want to add one more thing to make them delighted? I think the one last thing I, I take out, I think for me, usually this is what I leave the audience with if I really want to knock their socks off. And that's when I do the uh, billet tear. So uh, basically I have a blank piece of card, size of a business card, and you, you can even do it with your own business card if you have it, space for the people to write a uh, name of somebody that's uh, very dear to them or a name of somebody that they're thinking of. They they write it down, they fold it up, give it back to you, and you say, well, we don't really need these. I just needed you to focus your attention on one name. Uh, oftentimes when I ask somebody to think of a name, multiple names pop up could be three or four but now that you've written it down you've committed it you're committed yourself to memorizing and concentrating on just that one name so now we don't need it so i proceed to tear up the pieces and i have them hold on to the pieces and concentrate and now i make a connection i said well i know that i can sense that there's a kind of connection between you and i and i can see in your eyes that the person that you're thinking of is is a woman and uh, the name is rather long. I don't know, maybe uh, like seven or eight letters long, so forth. And you do a revelation uh, that at the end, it's exactly what they're thinking of or have written down. That sounds, that would blow them away. Right. Because then at the end, before they, I do the reveal, I put on my business card, the name that they're thinking of. And I hand it to them. I said, don't look at it. But I take back the loose pieces. And I said, what was the name you were thinking of? And they say the name, Elizabeth. And I said, take a look at the card. And then when they flip it over, I've written Elizabeth. Now they've got my card and the name. And now they remember, okay, yeah. they need a magician. Who do they call? I happen to have a card. Yeah. Very clever. Yeah, very clever. <laughs> and now, is that you're out for every group or is it? Is it a, is is that an out if it you know if they're a special group or 
they're really into what you're doing and they've been a good audience? Yeah, it just depends on the mood. Sometimes they want to get back to their own conversations. So maybe I do one or two and then I leave. I, I just go by the sense of, do they want me to stay or do they want me to go? And how many more people do I need to entertain because I only have an hour and a half or two hours and uh, there's a thousand people. If it's a thousand people, I can only do one or two effects and move on to the next. Uh, so it kind of depends. It depends on who looks important. The really important ones, I want to leave my name my name card with. <laughs> That's, That's what I want. It's just smart. It's been <laughs> smart straight across the board here. Um, are there advantages to doing corporate walk around? I have never done it. So I, I, what are the advantages to, to being able to sort of jump in and jump out? Well, for example, you you kind of live in a couple different camps because you have, you know, a full illusion stage show and you have a character within that show and you have that. And then you also have a, a, a really solid career doing this, which is strolling. Is there a, a reason why you prefer to stroll as opposed to stage? You know what? I have to say when I do close up or strolling magic, the impact, it's much stronger than when I'm on stage because I think because I can see their faces I can see the moment the moment they're awestruck by what the hell just happened yeah it's powerful when when magic is in front of your face like that and it's good uh it is akin to a religious experience you get that awe that 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 can be created by a great magician right there at a small table or standing around is uh is as close to a religious experience i think as we can get without actually having one exactly yes close to creating a miracle right yeah. before your eyes yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Right. i agree so like the story we've just heard of uh the crazy man's handcuffs have you ever had someone follow you from group to group to keep watching what you're doing because i am guilty of that uh <laughs> Uh, just because I have such an interest in magic, I, I don't think I've been quite as creepy or, or as weird as the guy in the story. But has that <laughs> happened to you in the past where you just you get a tag along? Yes. Usually they're younger kids, teenagers, younger kids, because there's nothing else happening and all the adults are talking. It's so boring. I'm going to follow the magician. And oftentimes I would make them my helper. Now they're with me, not against me, <laughs> not to try to spy out you know how the tricks are done but and obviously if they love magic that's why they're following me uh why not make them so they're a part of what i'm doing and we're all gonna have fun that's that's so smart to include them on your side of the fence there i'm taking notes i'm taking notes straight across the board here this is is just great you know it reminds me when we talked to david williamson last season and he kind of credits his career as a magician to the fact that when a magician came to school i think he was in third grade and the teacher saw that he was interested she said why don't you go be his helper and the magician said yes help me unload the van help me get set up and then when we're done i'll show you some tricks and he showed us some tricks and and he immediately put him on his side and then of course david uh went on to have the career that david's had so that idea of taking this shadow who's following you <laughs> and making them part of the show is is really smart have you on the other side of that have you had people google what you're doing as you're doing it or right after and no, 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 uh, no, that would be so absolutely rude. My God, I've never seen anybody do that. I, I think in 
in my entire life, they've been present because if they're uh, alone, they don't dare to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they're in a group, they're with their friends and they're just being there present and enjoying the moment together. And so I've never had somebody do that. That would be so absolutely rude. Please, if your listeners are listening, do not do that. Cut it out. Listeners yeah. to this podcast would never do that because no, they're the, they're they're the best. They're the best people. But what about when you have, let's say, a group of six people and one of them is just not into it? How do you make all that? How do you balance that? Well, if they're not into it, are they trying to distract the other by? If they're just keeping to themselves, then I can't force them. But if I have five people that are still interested, that's fine. The sixth one can go get a drink. You know, I'm good with that. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this. We discussed this uh, a couple episodes ago with Larry Hosk as we were talking about Eugene Berger. And Jim and I had the experience of having Eugene in town and having uh, being at dinner with him at a restaurant. And the uh, someone who worked at the restaurant came over because Jim knew him and sat down and Eugene did one of his mind blowing tricks. And the guy became visibly angry at being oh. fooled to the point where it's like, do we need to restrain him? And what? Larry has had that happen a couple of times. Has that ever happened to you where in a walk around situation, you get one of these people for whom magic is not just a puzzle, but it is a, 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 a challenge that must be uh, surmounted. Uh, thank God. No, but I wonder, I wonder a lot of times, do they see me as a woman and therefore less intimidating? Oh, Interesting, because I, I got to think there's probably a flip side to that coin, too, for you as a, a performer of magic. It, do, you, do you ever encounter sort of uh, a disconnect from an audience who can't quite wrap their head around the fact that you are a brilliant magician or do they just go with it? They usually go with it. Once I start, I start strong and then they're sucked in. Like they know I have powers. They just can't figure it out. And usually they just give up and enjoy the moment. Do you you ever combine? So if you've been hired to do a stage show, do you ever do some walk around before that in an effort to sort of, I don't know, break the ice and warm up the audience? I think there's a definite benefit to doing that. So that the audience is already on my side. Oftentimes when I'm up on stage and I have, I need an audience and it, I come out cold, they're more reluctant to raise their hand to come up and help me. But if I've already met them in the cocktail hour beforehand, they're like, oh, yeah, that's Jade. Hey, we all we want to come up. You yeah. know, um, that makes it much easier uh, and more approachable. Even though I'm approachable looking on stage, they still don't know who I am. Yeah. Right. Um, and they also don't know your personality and that you're not there to. Make fun of them, oh. you, and, and that's probably the scariest thing is, oh, she's going to make fun of me. Yeah, she's going to make exactly. me look uh, like a like a chump. And I, I, I think that yeah. uh, I think that is part of what a magician has to overcome, right? Is the magicians that they've seen who bring somebody up on stage and makes them a prop or a, a mm. you know the butt of their jokes and, oh. and, and mm. you know turns them back into the audience. There's, I think, there's a natural reticence to getting up on stage if you're a member of the audience. I think yeah. that's doubled or tripled if the performer is a magician because we have all been there when audience members are made to look stupid. Uh, you know what? I have to say, 
oftentimes that is absolutely correct. Again, you have to put yourself in the audience's position and they seem a woman up on stage, petite size. Okay, maybe you can't tell I'm only 5'4", but um, I'm, not, I'm less intimidating than a six foot tall man trying to do magic on an audience member. I, I already come off as not intimidating. So no reason for them to have to put up a fight, I think. And and when I start talking, then they know I'm I'm just chill. I'm good, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's great. Is there? I, I hesitate to use the word secret, but that's I guess what I'm asking. Is there a secret to a really strong walk around set? Or if I rephrase it, what's yeah. the secret to being successful as a strolling magician? Better, better. <laughs> At the end of the day. Okay, if you look at Williamson, he doesn't really need any tricks. It's just Williamson. Yeah. He's he's the weapon, right? Yeah, right. He, he's a weapon, all right. We yeah. gotta deploy Williamson. <laughs> oh yes. Um, so I think uh, the answer to your question is: uh, as my material rotates whatever I'm more inclined to do, what I think is fascinating or something I want to perfect or to get the nuance to be even stronger so that the impact is even more better felt by the audience. It, it just depends. What are you wanting them to remember? Do you want them to remember there was a moment of mystery and this woman came, she did this amazing stuff. I have no idea what happened. Was that real? And then she left. Or do they want me to be the one that says, oh, yeah, she had these coins. And then they just like went from hand to hand and then it appeared in my hand. I was squeezing it. And I swear to you, there were only two. But when I old my, my hand, there were three. I don't I don't know what happened. How? So I think, you know what? Now, as I'm explaining this to you, I think I want to leave them with a sense of wonder. Really, I, I do believe that there are so many things that we don't we don't know. We don't know a lot of things. And that's kind of the magic I try to portray, that the mystery is all around us. And sometimes if you just pause, take a moment to pause and take a look, the magic is right there before your eyes. Boy, does she understand magic and audiences and how things work and creating wonder every single time. Yeah. And you probably know if you listen to the interview that my takeaway is recasting the audience, these random strangers as friends that I haven't seen in a long time. It changes the entire dynamic. And boy, what a smart, simple. And as you said in the introduction, she just sort of threw it away like, it's yeah, yeah that's no big deal. It's brilliant. It's just flat out brilliant. So uh, it's it's that's my takeaway from this interview. Although Have you had a there chance were plenty of them. Have you had a chance to use that since we talked to her? No, I really haven't had had an okay. audience yet to uh, to jump in with that. But but I will soon this week, as a matter of fact. And so I will do all of that. And it's it's terrific. And, and you know what else I find interesting is things you don't think about. So there's the things you know. There's the things you don't know, but you know you don't know. And then there's the things you don't know that you don't know. No pockets. Yeah. That was like, I never would have thought of that. You have no, of course you have no pockets. You, uh, 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 
And they're so vital, I think, to yeah. most strolling magicians. So she's found a workaround so that she can, it's no pockets was a, a mind blower for me. It, it was a little less for me because it, it because it comes up early on in the Shazam podcast between Kayla and Carissa. They talk about that uh, early on. And that was it's something I was never able to work into an Eli Mark story, but I was very aware of. But you're right. It's something you who, never would think about. It. You'd never think about it. And then you go, where do I put all this stuff? Well, she's got it. She's got it figured out. And she also has figured out what will fit in that little purse yeah. that is going to hit the hardest and leave the strongest impression in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. I mean, that, and also, that, you know, what I found really interesting was her, her comment and, and take on the fact that I'm going to do for this little group as much or as little as this group wants mm -hmm. me to do. I'm focused on them. Yeah. And if it seems to me like they would prefer to continue their own evening and conversation, I'll do what I, you know, I'll do less and move on to another group. And if it seems like they want me to stay, then I'll do more, yeah. Yeah. which of course, obviously, yes, of course that makes sense. But so often in my performing, not that I do strolling magic at all, but just in my performing, I have a b and c to get through mm -hmm. and i'm getting through all of them whether you want me to get to c or not it's i'm getting them in and that idea of being flexible enough to say i really am these people don't need c they want to they want to do their own thing and that's just terrific she knows how to read the room uh, yeah. on on each group level and i i would say you do too i'm remembering back many years ago a corporate event we did where we had really overwritten what you needed to do on stage <laughs> and i still remember at about the two hour mark you flipped the page and saw it and went no we don't need that you're ripping pages out of the script while you're on stage you're like, nope they don't need that they don't need that, they don't nothing. Need that. that's nothing and you know it's it happened to me in a corporate show in uh marco island just this past month I, I we had a, an elaborate bit set up uh, with a house band and battle of the bands and audience members on stage and all of this stuff. And about halfway through the show, the producer came backstage and said, do you think we need that or are we OK? I said, I don't think we need it. And he said, it's out. Yeah. <laughs> we cut like 30 minutes out of the show just like that. Yes. Uh, and that's that's smart always leave wanting more it and is sometimes i don't follow that advice but she's figured that out to just yeah. read what they want and then move on or stay yeah and, unlike uh, me who's like it, it, put this funnel in your mouth and i'm just gonna pour it all in there so just keep swallowing because uh, I, i've got a lot of material to get through well, uh, and that's it's one of the lessons we learned uh you and i the hard way you know, never put a yeah. skit right before lunch they don't want <laughs> or a skit. at the end or at the end, they don't want us. They don't want skits there at all. We don't want that at all. Good night, everybody. Good night. Yes, no, there's nothing better you can say than good night. That's right. Anyway, we're so glad that she was able to chat with us. I'd love to have her back at some point. Next time, we're going to have a very different guest, uh, a guy that I was been trying to get for the last two years, who was very affable and agreeable once I got in touch with him. But I just had all these different email addresses and. Couldn't get through to him. And then finally talked to uh, my pal, Joe Diamond, who said, no, here's try this one. 
uh, and got right through to Mr. Ken Weber, who is the author of Maximum Entertainment 2.0, a book that I read as part of my process for writing Eli Marks, a book that uh, any performer, any person who's going to stand on stage in front of a group of people to do anything, read, not just do magic. anything, not just magic. really. Yeah, this cuts across and it's a great book. It's a great uh, if book. If you are thinking or if you are a performer listening to this podcast and you have not read this book, man, you ought to put this one on your nightstand and uh, yeah. get to it. because it's, it's. I I really wanted him last season because we were doing the whole How to Build a Better Magician. And that's yeah. that book. That's the yeah. book that right. you use. But anyway, I finally tracked him down. Uh, he was uh, vacationing in Florida. Uh, we had a great call with him uh, with a surprise guest. That's never happened before that another guest has popped out yeah, no, while we were chatting. We don't want to, you know, I'm not going to give anything away. Popcorn in the lobby here, but no, it, it was, it was a, a delight to just have a, uh, a pop in like that. That's never happened before. It'll probably never happen again. Probably not. Probably yeah. not. But uh, so anyway, look forward to that. We're going to hear the uh, the short story, the hundred dollar gift certificate. Ken Weber is going to talk to us about a uh, one of the shorter chapters in the book and uh, his book on on how to give notes and how to receive notes. Very important process that he's he's uh, honed down to a handful of notes that uh, make sense on, on how to do that. Always tricky. Always yeah. tricky. Always, always tricky. So thank you for listening to uh, this, our third episode of season three. If you have a moment, please click on the link in the show notes for the survey. Because we want to know what you want to do next season and beyond. Um, there are currently eight Eli Marks books. We've done by the end of the season, three of them, which would mean possible five more years. That's um, the math. You did it perfectly. Yeah. And probably there'd be other books before we're done with that. So anyway, click on the link, give us a rating, take the survey, tell your friends about us and uh, come back next time for Ken Weber. See you later, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.